You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Uh, We've been working our way through Romans. If you've been with us for the last several months, uh, you are plodding your way through uh, we're doing that because Romans is a glorious letter. I think Luther's called it the chief letter of the New Testament. And he said that, I think, because of the way it just concisely and thoroughly hammers the doctrines of the gospel, the doctrines of grace. And in chapters 1 through 8, you get that. You get this very thorough, detailed treatment of what is the gospel and how does it change us. And then in chapters 9 through 11, we step way back. Uh, we step out of the details and then get a picture of the, of the whole story. That's what Paul's doing. So if you're the kind of person that likes the big picture, then Romans 9 through 11 is for you. And truthfully, we all need to see the big picture because it helps us tremendously. Uh, this is illustrated in sort of an entertaining way in a movie called Stranger Than Fiction. Some of you may even be too young for that. However, I made last year's Equip class watch it. So if you did that assignment, it's, it's about to pay off for you, because I'm going to talk about it. Uh, it's a movie starring Will Ferrell. He, he plays the main character of Hell Crick. And the movie um, explores, in an entertaining way, some really big questions. It explores the interplay between divine will and human will. And Harold Crick, the main character, he's named after a mathematician. And so fittingly, his life is very calculated and precise Everything's under control, and it's predictable until he begins to hear a voice in his head. And it's not just any voice. It's some kind of divine voice because it is narrating his life. Like as he's brushing his teeth, it's talking about how exactly he's brushing his teeth, and it sort of weirds him out, as you would expect. But he, be, he begins to ask some big questions because of this voice. Like, what is freedom? He begins to search for his meaning and purpose in life, and it leads him to take counsel from this literature professor. Um, and so the literature professor is trying to tell him, like, look, we've got to figure out what kind of story you're in, because that makes all the difference in the world. And so they begin to ask the questions, what kind of narrator do you have? What's your purpose in this story? What is your life about? And in a much less entertaining way, we ask the same questions about our own lives, don't we? What kind of story are we in? What, what, is, what are we to think about God? Do we have freedom? Does prayer really change things? And so on. Through the process of elimination, Harold Crick and his counselor narrow it down to two options. He's either in a tragedy or he's in a comedy, and that's what he needs to figure out. Now, the terms tragedy and comedy aren't just like one's funny and one's not funny. It has more to do with how the conflict is resolved. And so, in a Comedy, the confusion ends when everyone sort of like gets it. Uh, People forgive and forget. Everything makes sense. Uh, People are rejoined to their community. They're reconciled and they they move on toward a happy future. So comedies end with that little phrase, and they lived happily ever after. That's how you know you're, you're watching a comedy. In a tragedy, you might still have similar conflicts, but it ends differently. A tragedy ends usually when the main character dies. And just before his or her death, they usually realize that that the predicament they're in is of their own doing, of their own making. And so the ending of a tragedy looks back over what's happened. And the ending of a comedy looks ahead to a bright future. 
This is what Harold Crick is trying to figure out, and it's difficult to do. It's difficult for us to do, because left to ourselves, inevitably we start saying we're in this kind of story or this kind of story based on just the circumstances that are going on around us. This is what happens to Crick. He begins by thinking his life is a tragedy because Anna, the girl, doesn't love him. And then he begins to think it's a comedy because maybe she does love him. And then he goes back to tragedy, and ultimately he ends up thinking it's a comedy. But this is, this is the predicament we get into, is constantly judging what kind of story we're in, what kind of God we have based on just what's going on right in front of us in the circumstances of our life. That's what Harold's going through. And what changed things for him is when he got a hold of the manuscript. He got the, the whole story and he sat down and he read it and suddenly his life made sense. He didn't understand everything at first. He didn't like everything that the story had to say. But it at least made sense of his life. And when it made sense, he was able to live with more purpose and more freedom and more joy than ever before. Life makes sense when you know the whole story. And Christians believe that the Bible, at least in outline form, is God revealing to us the whole story. And when you read the Bible, it's interesting to ask the same question. Is, this, is the Christian story a comedy or a tragedy? This is a question, I think, in Romans 11. It's an interesting time in the church in Rome. Because there is this mixed church of Jews and Gentiles, and and more Gentiles than Jews, and it had just never been like that. This is an unprecedented time in the history of redemption or of the church. And so they're asking a lot of big questions, like, what's going on here? Why Why is Israel on the outside looking in all of a sudden? Has God rejected his people? Has God gone back on his word? These are the questions of, of Romans 11, and they're important questions. Because they're not just about Israel, it's also about God. What kind of God do we have? What kind of story are we in after all? And so when you get answers to these questions, you begin to learn how you're supposed to think about God, about life, about the church. That's why these questions are not just relevant to them, but they're relevant to us. And so Paul steps back to the big picture for them and for us. This story, as he tells it, kind of follows the thread of God's people, and there's four acts. So open up to Romans 11. I want to show you these four acts very quickly, and then we'll come back through them in detail. Not too much detail. I won't keep you here that long. Uh, Romans 11, verse 30. Let's kind of go to the end, because here, here we're going to get one of a few summaries of the whole story. He says, he's talking to the Gentiles, just as you were at one time disobedient to God. So there's Act 1, an age of Gentile disobedience. Um, Now you have received mercy because of their disobedience. So Act 2 is Jewish or Israel's disobedience, and Act 3 is the consequent blessing or mercy shown to the Gentiles. So let me read back over that. Just as you were once at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. And Act 4 is a return of, of widespread mercy to Israel. All right, so four acts, if you didn't catch that, we'll, we'll get back through them. Act 1 is essentially the story of the Old Testament. 
God creates the heavens and the earth, puts man and woman in the garden to work it, to rule the earth, to fill it with God worshipers. They fall into sin, uh, bringing spiritual and physical death into the world. All of creation is in bondage to decay. And God enters into that brokenness, into that fallen world to redeem it. And he begins by making a promise of a of a future redeemer, of one who would come, one who would rescue and set all things right. He promises them a Messiah as early as Genesis 3. But then he begins to work toward that plan, to, to work out history toward that end through a specific people. And that picks up in, in Genesis 12. God comes to Abraham, and he makes a covenant with Abraham, and he says, through you, and specifically through your son Isaac and his line, I'm going to make you a great nation of people, and you will be a blessing to all the nations. And so you see that thread, that storyline unfold through Isaac, who has Jacob and Esau, and God favors Jacob, not because of anything they've done, but because of his mercy. And then Jacob has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. This is, the nation is expanding. One of those sons is Joseph. And you know the story of Joseph, his brothers sell him into slavery. But what they meant for evil, God meant for good, because Joseph ends up basically ruling over Egypt, leads them through this great famine. And it's because of that famine that his brothers and his dad and eventually all of Israel is relocated to Egypt. So you have God's people in Egypt, and that sets the stage for the great redemptive story of, of Yahweh against Pharaoh. And so God, through Moses, delivers his people out of slavery in Egypt. They wander around in the wilderness, but it's in the wilderness that through Moses, God gives his people the law. And so, like, how are we supposed to live before God? What is human flourishing like? And he gives them the sacrificial system, which is to say, how do we deal with our sin? How do we deal with, how do we fellowship with God when we break this law? Then there's this cycles of idolatry and deliverance and idolatry and deliverance throughout Israel's history. They cry out for a king, and so God gives them a king. One of those kings is David, and he makes a covenant with David. It just builds on the covenant that he had made with Abraham. And he tells David, I'm going to establish your throne, and there will be a king to come who will reign on your throne forever. We're back to the promised Messiah. They have a series of wicked kings. There's a few good guys mixed in there. Um, but essentially, it's, it's marked by disobedience and idolatry on the part of Israel. God sends them prophets to remind them of who God is and what he's done for them, but largely they reject the prophets. God raises up foreign nations, Babylon and Assyria, to judge his people because of their disobedience and their idolatry. And so they're taken captive, and eventually they return to their land, and it's in this time that Daniel prophesies about the Messiah, about the one who would come and deliver them. Now, there had been many prophecies about the Messiah before, but the fact that Daniel's prophesying this at this time just goes to show, after all of this, after the thousands of years of God just holding you together in spite of yourself, he's still with you, still has a plan still working out redemption for his people. So you can see the dilemma in the church in Rome, because they know this story. This is their story. The dilemma is, after all of this history with God and his people, has he finally given up on them? Is it finally done? Has he rejected his people? 
It's an important question again, because it's not just about Israel, it's about God. Is he faithful? Can we trust his word? Here's Paul's answer. Chapter 11, verse 1. Has God rejected his people? By no means. And the summary of his argument is this. You're judging God's faithfulness on the numbers. You're looking at what everybody looks at, but God doesn't see it that way. God's faithfulness isn't about the numbers. It's about his grace toward his people. And the evidence of his grace is that throughout all of that time and even now, there's always been a remnant. Within the nation of Israel, there's always been true Israel, those who were faithful, those who trusted God. Look at his argument. Verse 1. He offers his own personal testimony. He says, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. In other words, Paul's saying, if, if you're asking, is God, does God still love Israel? Is he still working in, in Jewish people's lives? Then yes, I'm the answer to that question. Paul was not just a Jew, he was a Pharisee. I mean, he was leading the charge of the persecution against the early Jesus followers and he's saying, no, 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 but even me, Jesus appeared to me, chose me, saved me. So is God alive? Is God at work? Yes. Look at my own life. And then he gives him a theological argument. Verse 3. No, continue in verse 2. Uh, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now remember, when we were in Romans 8, we talked about this word foreknew. It's an intimate word. Like Adam knew his wife and they conceived a child. Knowing is an intimate word. And what Paul is saying is God foreknew them. Before they existed, he chose them for intimate relationship with himself as his people. And so if he chose them by grace, then he sustains them by grace. And he gives us this example because the evidence of his grace is this remnant. And so verse 3 Uh, or verse 2 still, sorry. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. And so he's referencing a story where there's this great battle between the prophet Elijah and Baal, the false god Baal, Israelite. The Israelites are, are worshiping Baal. I wish I could tell this story right now, but essentially there's this epic throwdown in which Elijah makes Yahweh look as awesome and powerful as he is, and Baal is reduced to nothing. And in the aftermath of that, Elijah's like, yes, this will finally show the nation that Yahweh is God, and they will repent, and they will worship him, but they don't. And Elijah finds himself sulking in a cave, and he says to God, verse 3, Lord, they have killed, after all this, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek me. Here he's saying, there is no one, you've rejected your people. And God says to him in that text, and Paul quotes it here, but what is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. How were those 7,000 men chosen? By grace. It wasn't that God looked at the whole nation and was like, well, there are 7,000 good people. They're mine. No, he chose them by grace. That's what Paul's saying. So too, at this present time, there is a remnant also chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So he talks about Elijah just to show us this is what grace means. 
It means that the history of redemption, and of the world for that matter, isn't driven by, isn't determined by human strength or power or might, but by God's mercy and grace. Has God rejected His people? No. He's always kept a remnant by His grace. So look, when you, when you feel like God has abandoned you, or the church, or His people, it means you've moved away in your thinking from grace. You might be seeing your circumstances correctly, but you're drawing the wrong conclusions about God. That's what's going on in Rome. The Gentiles are seeing the diminishing number of Jewish believers, and that is, they're seeing the circumstances correctly. They're just drawing the wrong conclusions. They're saying, oh, well, God must be phasing them out. Don't, don't you know what that's like? To see your circumstances correctly, but to draw the wrong conclusions about God? Like when your life is unraveling, you think, oh, God must be punishing me. Okay, well, maybe your life is unraveling, but it's the wrong conclusion to say God is punishing you. Maybe God's trying to draw near to you. Too often when we have conflict in our relationships or in our gospel community, we just think, man, something is going drastically wrong because conflict is bad. And so uh, God must be just abandoning our community. Well, maybe God's using the conflict to deepen your community so that as people learn what it means to confess and be forgiven, to repent and be reconciled, to operate on the terms of grace instead of works, that they would have deeper, real, meaningful community. Sometimes we look at our culture, and it is unraveling, just morally speaking. And we tend to think God has abandoned our, our nation. It's unraveling. Morality has flown out the window. That is an accurate observation. I don't know exactly what conclusion you should draw from that, but it's possible that it highlights God's glory more to bring judgment against the sin of a nation and show mercy on some than for a nation to just be moral. See, God is doing stuff at a level that we do not see and sometimes cannot see. But the foundation of the story is His grace. I think it was Jerry Bridges who gave this illustration. He said, imagine two kinds of days. Uh, you have a bad day and a good day. So, on a good day, you wake up, you read your Bible, you pray. If you've got wife and kids, you kiss them on the head and you walk out the door. And you go to work. You get to work and you do everything with excellence. You work as unto God and not unto man. Yet it's really good for man. Right, because your boss sees the work you're doing and he gives you accolades and you become aware of all the needs that people have around you, so how people are even falling behind and you put them above your own work even and you, you help them because we're only as good as the weakest link, you say to yourself. And so you, you, you're a blessing to the people at work. All day long, it's just one of those days where you're just mindful of God's presence with you and working through you. It's really awesome. You get a call at the end of the day from a friend who wants to meet you for dinner and this friend is going through something really difficult. So you can make this conversation whatever you want. Let's say it's a friend who doesn't believe in God. They're wrestling. They really want, to, want you to help them understand how they can know God. It could be a friend who is a Christian who's just going through something really difficult, needs counsel, and so they're seeking counsel from you. Whatever you want it to be. All right, that's, that's your good day. All right, let's go to bad day. You wake up late. 
And so from the get-go, you're consumed with your own needs and you're consumed with yourself because you got to get ready fast. And so you're cranky to the people around you. On the way to work, you're cutting people off. You're a terrible driver. You get to work and you're behind. You're behind on your project. And so you're working hard. You're shutting everybody else out. But then you get stuck. It's just one of those days where you're looking at the computer screen for like hours and you spend like two hours writing nine words and editing them over and over. And so you're so far behind on your work, and the boss comes to check in, and you sort of spin it a little bit. You suddenly shift blame to someone else. So this doesn't make it, it might be their fault, but it's real subtle. But meanwhile, people around you have all kinds of needs, and you're not even aware of it because you are so consumed with what you have got to do. You've just been cranky. You haven't thought about God all day. It's a bad day. That afternoon, you get the same phone call. Dinner with the same friend, same conversation. Let me ask you this. On which day is God going to be more faithful to you in that conversation? See, our default is to think that, well, it's the good day. And that only shows how conditioned we are to operate on the basis of works, on the basis of performance, rather than on the basis of grace. You should have the good day. God wants good days for you. But listen, if God wants to use you in that conversation— to minister to that person, it will not be because you had a good day. It will be because of his mercy toward you and toward the other person. This is what we learn from Act 1 of the story. God's faithful to his people because the story is about his grace, not their works. And that becomes abundantly clear in Act 2. At the end of the Old Testament... God has this unique chosen people. It's a people who, in spite of all their failures, they understand a few things. They understand the need for blood sacrifice for sin. Um, They understand the promises that were made to Abraham and David. They're awaiting a Redeemer. And so these people are ready for a Messiah who will shed his blood, who will bless the nations, who will reign on the throne forever. They're ready for Jesus. After 400 years of silence, Jesus comes. He's born to Mary and Joseph. The Word of God, John says, became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. And to those who believed in him, he gave them the right to be called children of God. That is, they're in the family, they're in the people of God. But there's a twist in the story. Like, it doesn't go down the way you think it would. Because John says... He came to his own first, and they rejected him. Jesus came to his chosen, beloved Israel. And it is they who didn't receive him, but rather crucified him. Some of the Jews believed, of course. But the majority did not. Even after he raised from the dead, many did not believe. And in Romans 10, we figure out why. This is what Paul tells us. That they, they were zealous, just not according to knowledge, not according to truth. And so even though God was making his righteousness available to all through faith in Jesus, they didn't want that righteousness. They were seeking to establish a righteousness of their own. When the point of the story is that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. God's working this story out for thousands of years. And when it finally comes to its climax, they say, no, we want our own story. 
on our own righteousness. Act 2 is a decisive moment of disobedience and rejection. Israel rejects Jesus. It's important to note that in Acts 1 and 2, God's the author of both of them. None of this is taking him by surprise because he's behind it. He is writing the story. History is unfolding in a way that will reveal and maximize his glory to the nations. And that takes us to Act 3. God's people reject God's Son. And so the question coming up in, in Romans eleven eleven is, why? Why did Israel stumble over Jesus? What was the purpose of their stumbling? Was it so that they might fall, be done away with? The Jewish leaders, uh, after Jesus raised from the dead, Paul included, persecuted the church. And so you had some Jewish Christians who were living in Jerusalem. They were getting persecuted from their faith, driven out. And what happened was they began to flee Jerusalem. And so you have Jewish Christians who are spreading all out over the Mediterranean. And as they go, you know what goes with them? The story about Jesus. Their faith goes with them. And so now the gospel is being taken to the Gentile world and churches are being planted that are both a mix of Jews and Gentiles. That is the church in Rome. Paul didn't plant this church. It was probably started by some Jewish Christians in that manner. Now, every good story has irony. And here's the irony in this one. They're asking, what's God up to in this mixed church thing, this Jewish-Gentile church? What's up with that? And the answer is right under their nose. This is what God's been doing all along. Their church is exhibit A of God's plan to bless the nations. And they're like, what's going on here? This is the point of the covenants. God's covenant with Abraham was that through him he would bless the nations. God's covenant with with, uh, his people through Moses and with David, all of that was that they would be a people who would worship and obey God and who by their worship would be a light to the nations so that all would see that Yahweh is the one true God. And every step along the way, they absolutely failed at that calling. And so Jesus comes to be what Israel never was, a light to the nations. So why has Israel stumbled over Jesus? Why have they rejected him? So that through his death, Jesus could be exalted so that the nations would know that Yahweh is God. Right under their nose. So Act 3 is about the widespread inclusion of, of the Gentiles into the people of God. Because of Jesus, the door to God's house has been flung open. And anyone and everyone can come in just by faith in Jesus. Act 3 is really good news for the world. Now, with the exception of of a very uh, brief glimpse into the end of the story, which you get like in Revelation, this is basically where the biblical narrative of God's people ends in the first century. And it's essentially where we find ourselves in the narrative as well, just after the death and resurrection of Jesus and before the end of the story. And so we're with, we're with them in this. So at this point in the story, what would you say? Are we in a tragedy or a comedy? 
feels a little bit like a tragedy, right? Because the, the main character has died, and it was his own doing. He did it willfully by God's divine decree. But it's weird because the death is a good thing for the world. So maybe, maybe it's a comedy. Well, Act 4 gives us the answer. Look at verse 15 in Romans 11. For if their rejection, Israel's rejection, means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So again, follow him. They were disobedient so that you might get mercy. Now, what will their acceptance mean? He's pointing to the end of things. There's going to be this widespread inclusion, uh, this show of mercy to Israel again. And what he says it will mean is life from the dead. It's, it's eschatological language of resurrection. There's going to be a day when there's not just churches with Jews and Gentiles, in, but there is one sanctuary. And around it will be the people of God from every tongue and tribe and nation. There won't even be Jews and Gentiles or slave or free or rich or poor, but just the people of God singing one song of his majesty and his glory. That's act four. So we're in a comedy. We live happily ever after. People rejoin the community. They're in the people of God. There's reconciliation and praise forever. Now, this might seem like a very roundabout way for God to do things, for God to show his mercy on Israel and on the world. I agree. But you know what? We don't get to edit the story. We, we just get to play our part in it. When you come to Romans 9 through 11 and it, and it just messes with you, challenges your sensibilities, it takes God out of the theological box that you had him in, there has to be a sense in which you just say, you know what, I'm not God. I don't get to decide how the story goes. And you worship. That's where Paul comes to. Verse 33 through 36 is Paul's conclusion to what he's been saying. His own personal experience, he says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? You see what he's saying? This is the story, as best I know it. This is what God has revealed, and there's so many unanswerable questions, but you know what? That means we're not God, and that's good news. Let's worship God and not ourselves. The story gives us an appropriate sense of smallness. Not meaning, meaninglessness, we're meaningful, but just smallness in comparison to who God is and what he's doing. I don't know if, you, if you're an art person, perhaps you're familiar with the art of George Seurat. There's a French way to say that, but if I try, it'll just sound real dumb. So I'm just going to be American in it. Uh, he was a neo-impressionist painter, but he, he made popular, him and some other people, what is called pointillism. And so these are the paintings that are just made up of specific little pixels or dots. And when you're up close, they're just dots, but when you look back at the whole thing, they, they're part of a larger pattern that makes this beautiful painting. Now, if you get up close to those paintings and you just focus in on one little section, all you see is a bunch of dots. It's like a third grader could do it. But when you pull back and you look at the whole, you see something beautiful, like the work of a master artist. 
in the painting of God's story, you and I are the dots. It doesn't mean we're meaningless. We got to be there because we contribute to the whole. But if you end up living your whole life for the dot, then you elevate yourself above the whole. And when you do that, you, you, you can't possibly see God for who he is. And furthermore, you hinder others from being able to see God for who he is. I think this, question, this chapter poses this question to us, and that is this. Are you willing just to take your place in the story? Are you willing for it not to be about you, or about God and his glory? How do you do that? Let me end with this. I think Paul seems to have a very specific application in mind when he writes this, uh, especially for the Gentiles. It seems that the Gentiles are feeling pretty good about themselves because they're in the majority, and the majority always feels good about themselves. It seems like they think they might not be the favored people of God. They feel, I don't know, maybe more enlightened or freer than the Jews. The Jews have their own sense of pride because they have all this history They have the law, and they feel very proud about that. Meanwhile, the Jews actually feel proud about their freedom from all their little laws. And so you have this point of tension in the church in Rome, these two groups of people with different histories coming together, and there is inevitably comparison and judgmentalism, envy, pride, lack of concern for the other, and so on. And so Paul takes aim at these issues. Chapter 11, verse 18, let me give you a few examples. This, is, this section is all about this olive tree, and you get these branches and the wild olive tree being grafted in. It's all just to say the storyline that we've been talking about. Jewish disobedience, Gentile obedience, Jewish blessing later. Okay, verse 18. Do not, talking to the Gentiles, do not be arrogant toward the branches, toward Israel. If you are, remember, it's not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. In other words, You didn't just come into this in a vacuum. God made promises to the patriarchs, and you're standing on the foundation of those promises. Verse 19, then you will say, ah, yeah, but branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. In other words, players were cut so I could be picked up off waivers. Paul says, sure, that's that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast, not because of your works, but because of your faith. So, do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God didn't spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Now listen, he's not talking about specific individual people who, because they're not faithful anymore, they're proud, they, get, they lose their salvation. He's talking in corporate groups here. He's saying there will be a day when Gentiles as a whole, when the mercy, the flow of mercy shrinks and it, and it gets directed back to Israel. That's all he's saying. Verse 23, and even if they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. Acts 4, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature... Into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery. 
And the mystery isn't something that's unknown. Mystery here means something that has been unknown that is now known, now revealed, made clear in the gospel. Paul is saying, I want you to see the big picture. I want you to see the whole story. I want you to read the Old Testament because you've got to know what kind of story you're in, what kind of God you have. The God you and I have right now, the God of the New Testament, is the same God of the Old Testament. It's always been by grace, and it still is. And so pride, arrogance, conceit has no room in the story. Now let me, uh, let me just make this one comment. I know that what kind of church we have. Uh, we've got a very ambitious church. You guys are go-getters. You're out to change the world and make lots of money and have influence and power. Great. So you're asking the question, how does humility fit into that? Because sometimes we think about humility as passivity, like I'm supposed to just become nothing. That's not what humility means. It means to become what, what God intends you to be, to take your place in the story because he gave you a place in the story. And so how do you... Uh, how do you pursue excellence? How do you think about the ambitions and the desires that God has put in your heart in the context of humility? Let me give you just two questions. Well, first I would say you pursue those desires and you pursue what God has for you for His glory, not yours. And here's two questions to sort out how you know the difference of whether or not you're living for God's glory or yours. Here's the first question What if you fail? Whatever it is you're trying to do, what if you fail? Then what? See, the whole letter has been about righteousness. What makes us feel like we matter? What makes us feel like we're okay? So if you fail and that thing that you're basing your righteousness on is taken away and you're reduced to despair, that's how you know you're living for your glory and not God's. Because if nothing can separate you from the love of God, if your place in the story is secure and there's a happy ending no matter what, then you've got nothing to lose. You might fail, but it doesn't ruin you. In fact, you might see that your failures only serve to bring more glory to the author of the story. So that's one question. What happens if I fail? Second one is, is who is it for? Whatever you're doing, whatever you're chasing, who is it for? Whenever we uh, live for the dots inevitably, we get wrapped up in a very small story. The whole thing becomes about us. And so you either take huge risks with great anxiety because your whole life depends on it, or you don't take any risks at all because you're afraid of failing. But what the gospel does is it frees you to, for the story not to be about you, but about others. And so if the story is about others then you have freedom to take huge risks because you have nothing to lose because your righteousness is secure in Christ. And so you're free to use your money, your power, your platform, your influence, your relationships, all of that that you're pursuing. You're free to use all of that for the good of others, especially those who are helpless. And it doesn't even matter if anybody notices you because it's not about you. Isn't that great? This is what happens to Harold Crick. His life is safe and predictable and controlled. And then he reads the whole story, and he finds out that in the story, the end of it is he dies. And so he lives with this knowledge of his untimely, tragic death is coming. And you know what it does to him? 
It sets him free. When he discovers that and when he resigns to it, this death to self becomes liberating freedom to love a girl and risk rejection, to take risks in his life, to get outside of the lines that he's drawn for himself, to eventually give his life up for the good of a stranger. Knowing the whole story and dying to yourself being the main character of the story is such liberating freedom. And Crick only points us to Jesus. Jesus is the one who knowingly went to his death for the glory of the author and for the good of others. If life is a tragedy, then you can only respond in one of two ways. You can do nothing, just depression, despair, or you can do anything you want, just hedonism, straight on. If life's a comedy, then you can live with purpose and meaning. And above all, you must live with humility. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.